The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. What we were saying was that the uh, the contrast is essentially that uh, that we find at the very beginning of the document uh, here now articulated in um, its own distinctive way as we'll be seeing. Um, and we can notice also without too much difficulty that what the writer is doing here uh, as he also does in the opening words is anticipate that distinction that he will uh, develop very fully in the middle part of the document uh, particularly chapters 7 through 10 and that is the distinction based on covenant, between Old and New Covenant. Old and New Covenant. Oh, that reminds me of a note that I... I, uh, If we could kind of, uh, not so much back up, but just uh, insert here. Um, The... um, So far as the eschatology is concerned, the eschatological structure... uh, we can say that from the writer, uh, writer's vantage point, in terms of the two-age distinction between this and the coming age, uh, the new covenant overlaps. Uh, I don't think we can say that, uh, that the distinction is, is synonymous, uh, just um, that is that old answers entirely to this and new to the coming covenant. But uh, so far as the new side is concerned, the coming age and the new covenant um, are essentially coterminous. The differences would fall out more on on this side. So even though um, new covenant, uh, covenant language isn't explicit here, uh, that is certainly what is materially involved. And the passage then can be compared uh, particularly, uh, well, you tell me, where in Paul do we find a very uh, extensive programmatic contrast between Moses and Christ? Second Corinthians. Yes, would be, um, be indicated there too but especially uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 6 to the end of the chapter is, um, uh, is built along the same lines. So what uh, 3, 1 through 6 does then, we can say, is bring out both the continuities and the differences between the two covenants. We can sum up uh, matters that way uh, to this point. What the writer's doing here is, uh, is wanting to bring out um, continuity and discontinuity, continuity and, um, and um, difference. That is, continuity and difference between the two historical orders 
of which Moses and Christ, respectively, are representatives. Now, it's important to appreciate here on that continuity-discontinuity question is that the element of continuity is more basic. And that comes out in these verses uh, in the image of the house. Uh, the, The more basic point I'm saying in these verses is that Moses and Christ have in common the fact that they are involved in the construction of God's house, His oikos, His uh, the redemptive, uh, which we can qualify immediately, I think, without too much discussion here, the redemptive edifice that is being built by God. Both are faithful, we can say, to the, to the building commission that they have received for that house building. They have different commissions, but uh, what they have in common is that uh, those different commissions are within the one house building um, a project. Well, this this passage, um, just take uh, the time to say it here. It, it, it just always strikes me uh, as a very difficult passage for someone wanting to maintain uh, a dispensational construction of the relationship between um, the office of Moses and and and, the, uh, and Christ, Israel, and the Church. It's a matter of one house, not two. Uh, Now, so that's what's common here. Uh, The appointment, um, the the, the house, the the commission uh, that each has in the one house, that each has a commission in the one house. Now, the difference... Look at verse 5. This comes out uh, there, for instance. Moses' labors, we're told, are as witness, or in order to witness to the things that would be spoken. By the way, uh, this is now the third occurrence of laleo, uh, with God as subject of divine speech. 1, 2, 2, 3, and 3, 5 are the uh, um, is, is the is the sequence. Um, and when we ask then, uh, since the, 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 the expression is, is intransitive here, uh, that is, it, it's not focused in a content, what is, is, is Moses witness to? What are these things that would be spoken? Then surely we have to come back to 1-2, uh, to the speech of God in the Son. In other words, the distinctive office of Moses was to, as a witness to Christ. That's what Moses is all about at least from the viewpoint of the writer here, uh, a witness 
to Christ. Um, again, we have a Christ described as huios, the anarthrous uh, uh, use without the article, as in 1-2, which um, um, highlights uh, not the indefiniteness, you probably had this point made to you before, uh, but the qualitatively uh, distinct character of um, the revelation in Christ. This, this is sun quality revelation in relationship to what came before. Yes? The difference is also in the position that they Yes. Because one of the servant and another as an owner of God. Right, right. You're, you're, you're stealing my thunder here. Um, it's, it's the difference. You can see it in the prepositions. It's the one in the house, the other over the house. The, um, and, and along that line now, bringing out further the differences in, in, in the common endeavor they have in, in, in the building, they differ. Notice now looking at verses 3 and 4, they differ as the house and its builder. That's what the writer says. Um, the one who builds the house is reckoned worthy of greater honor than the house itself. So that now you see uh, Moses is, is seen now not only as a servant in the house, but as, as a part of the house over which Christ is. And, and I could just, uh, we can just go on to point out here uh, that verse 4 uh, is, you see, in its own way, I, I think an unmistakable reference to the deity of Christ. Because uh, having made the comparison in verse 3, Christ is certainly seen as the one uh, who is uh, correlative with God who builds all things. God, the builder of all things. So, um, um, we're not taking the time so much to explore it here, but it's it's an interesting... uh, phenomenon in the book of Hebrews uh, that it uh, certainly the uh, the conjoint humanity and deity of the Son that he is true God and true man uh, that is no problem for the writer of the Hebrews and he uh, perhaps more than any other New Testament writer holds them together we have here some of the clearest statements particularly in chapter 1 as, as here as to the deity of Christ and yet uh, elsewhere uh, very emphatically as to the genuine humanity of Christ. And uh, then just uh, underline what uh, TP has already pointed out to us, is the difference between a servant in the house and a son over the house. Servant in the house, son over the house. And maybe we should just we should be sure to to add this as well uh, before moving on in, in the light of what we've already been discussing. Surely the writer wants here to uh, to uh, accent intends to to have us appreciate uh, once again the finality of this house, the finality of the building activity, 
which Christ is placed over, his sonship over the house. Uh, particularly if we keep the connection between this passage and 1-2. So that we can say that what the writer uh, is wanting to suggest here again is that on the one hand, the work of Moses is pre-eschatological, it's anticipatory, witness. But the work of Christ is again final and eschatological. And we could also say then that what we have in verses 1 through 6 is, uh, if you will, uh, the writer uh, picking up on, on the first situational factor, that is the, the Christological axis or line. So there is uh, that point first. Now, second, looking, zeroing in now on the latter part of verse 6, the writer says, having just spoken of Christ as Christ as son over the house, faithful as son over the house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope, or the boast of hope. Whose house we are if we hold fast. Now you can see what, what happens here. Um, the discussion in the latter part of verse 6 takes a definite turn and we might even say an unexpected term, turn. Not maybe unexpected in terms of the document as a whole, but in terms of the immediate uh, context, um, an unexpected turn. You see, uh, as we've been trying to bring out in, in, in commenting somewhat on, on uh, verses 1 through 6, up to that point, up through 6a, the, rather, the writer is, is painting with rather broad strokes. He's developing this uh, sweeping treatment uh, of the greater part of the whole of the history of redemption, covenant history. Uh, bringing out uh, general basic distinctions in that history as he compares Moses and Christ. Now, suddenly though, almost abruptly, he focuses very directly on the readers. It's as if he's had a, 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 a panoramic, panoramic vision out there and then uh, he turns it right back on the audience, the camera. Two points are on the surface here in 6b. The first is the indicative or statement of fact. They, that is the we of one, two. They are part of the house. They have a place in the house. And in other terms, what that would mean is uh, that... Um, that uh, the we here um, has a share, an experience of the great end-time salvation revealed in Christ. That's what it means to be part of the house, to share uh, in the redemptive 
the redemption that has come in Christ. Uh, remember, uh, that picks up on what he's, uh, how he's already identified the, the readers back in verse 1 as partakers of the heavenly, heavenly calling. Partakers of the heavenly calling. And if you have a text in front of you, look at verse 14. Uh, verse 14, we have become partakers of Christ. So this language of participation, we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Uh, this, uh, this, the, the language of participation, being participators, um, is correlative with the, the, the notion of being part of the house. But, uh, while there's that factor, there's another uh, that is immediately brought into the picture. They are part of the house if they hold fast. If they hold fast. Now just on the text, um, if you're looking at the Greek text, you can see that there's a variant in the latter part of, uh, of verse 6. Um, whether to read, in effect, the words makri telus bebion, hold fast, or uh, boast, and so on, firm until the end, firm until the end. Uh, most likely, uh, you, if, if you have a Bible Society's text, you can see they are not included. I think that's a, that's a proper decision. Most likely, look at verse 14, where you see them, uh, uh, closely parallel statement, we become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence firm until the end. Uh, it's easy to see how they would have been copied uh, from there back to verse 6. But, even though we ought not to read them explicitly there, that is certainly the thought. Uh, the scribe who has uh, transposed them or, 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 or added them here has certainly... Uh, uh, recognize the true uh, drift or, or point of the passage. Um, so, they are part of its house if they hold fast. I think it's fair to say that the latter part of verse 6 brings to a focus in, in one basic uh, construction, assertion. It brings to a focus the basic factors in the situation of the readers, the constitutive factors in the reader's situation. Uh, the situation, as we've been laboring to bring out, that is addressed throughout the, uh, the entire book. That situation which we can now uh, characterize in terms of paying attention particularly to the grammar of the statement, uh, that situation uh, which we can... Uh, Describe as the final and definitive yet conditional character of the believer's present experience of salvation. The present experience of the church as final and yet conditional. And you can uh, 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 appreciate, I hope, that the uh, the paradox that I'm wanting, uh, in a way that uh, men are speaking, that I'm wanting to communicate. 
what is definitive and yet conditional. Definitive and yet conditional. As uh, uh, Dennis Johnson on the faculty of Westminster uh, Seminary in California um, has put it in, in some work uh, on the uh, book of Hebrews, it's a matter of the contingent confidence. The contingent confidence. Picking up on um, the idea of, of the boast and, and, and confidence that we have in this verse. A contingent confidence. So, uh, to use another category, uh, there is unmistakably, then, is there not, a tension. A tension uh, that is... Uh, established in this construction. And it is that tension uh, which, is, uh, which, which characterizes the present experience of the church. And uh, notice how uh, uh, unmistakably and, e- and even strikingly that's brought out in the composition uh, of the statement. What we have here is uh, a protasis an apodosis followed by a protasis, a, a conclusion. Maybe I should put that jargon up. A conclusion or a consequent. I guess it would help if I wrote clearly, too. And a conditional cause. Uh, the apodosis, you see, uh, having this sweeping present indicative, whose house we are, we are his house. And there you see is, is, the, is the Christological dimension of our interest. But then join with that is, the, is an aon clause, a present general condition. as, uh, say, someone like Burton would describe it in his Moods and Syntax, uh, Moods and Tenses. Um, if we hold fast, and we can say that lying in back of this aeon, it's not exaggerating, or, we can say lying in back of this aeon, this clause, is then the entire paranetic element that we have uh, given indication already of uh, permeating uh, the entire document. So we have here, it's interesting to make a comparison with Paul, here we have indicative and imperative structure, uh, the bond of indicative and imperative, but reversed from Paul, at least the pattern that Paul uses. Uh, for Paul, um, the indicative is always in the conditional clause, the imperative is in the uh, consequent. Colossians 3.1. If you are raised with Christ, seek the things above. Now, grammatically, we have um, uh, things uh, reversed here. Now, the, uh, um, the, um, the uh, indicative comes out in the, condition, in, in the consequent and the uh, imperative in the conditional clause. And uh, that raises some questions uh, and um, we'll want to come back and, and give more attention to them 
as we go on. So, um, this, I think, has to be observed next. As, uh, if we're on sound ground now, as, as, uh, as verse 6 can be seen then to pinpoint uh, this tension, this uh, contingent confidence, we can say that the conditional clause here in particular, the, uh, with which verse 6 ends, that conditional clause uh, triggers, becomes the occasion for what the writer goes on to say in the section beginning at 3.7 and continuing through 4.13. so that the discussion in these verses is more or less self-contained, that is, 3, 7 through 14, 4, 13. Um, it's a more or less self-contained discussion. The verses are a unit, and we even indicated it can be seen, um, or, or has been seen as parenthetical, but these verses are by no means isolated surely in the document, and as we reflect on them, they are not subordinate. Because what happens in this section, 3, 7 and following, is that, or what these verses do, is perform the, the integral function of amplifying the situation in which New Covenant believers find themselves. These verses serve to explain the situation as it is, uh, can be seen to be highlighted in, in, in verse 6, uh, the contingent confidence. Um, what this passage does is to make clear in very graphic uh, terms the nature of the tension that is being experienced by the church. So that... Uh, this passage, as much as anything, at least so far as I've been able to see, this passage provides a, a, a rationale. Uh, we'll even see a certain uh, a, a redemptive historical rationale. A redemptive historical rationale, um, this passage especially, for the exhortation that permeates the entire letter. Okay, um, we've talked about um, verses 1 through 6. We've talked about uh, 6b. So now in the third place, um, let's uh, think, begin moving into the passage 3.7 through 4.13. Uh, let me just stop here a second and see if there are any comments or questions. Anybody wants to pick up on. Now, looking into these verses, uh, what has uh, drawn attention and has often been experienced as, as kind of baffling is the pattern of argumentation in this passage, the mode of argumentation. We could perhaps uh, describe it this way. Uh, as you read through the passage, 
you certainly get an impression of the general drift of the argument, but particularly uh, the progression can seem puzzling. In other words, uh, it, seem, it, it, it's diffi- it can be uh, difficult, at least at a first reading, um, to, um, to see just why the writer makes uh, the argumentative uh, moves that he does. And more particularly, uh, what is puzzling is the apparent gaps in the argument, in the development of the argument. And what has been uh, experienced as well, uh, these, uh, uh, it's really bound up with, with the apparent gaps in the argument, is the way in which the writer uses scripture. His use of scripture. Now I want to suggest that the, uh, the problems encountered here um, come with a certain agenda um, unarticulated with which we as readers come to the text. Uh, well, let me say, it, it, I'm, I'm not wanting to suggest that there are no difficulties in this passage, no, no, no uh, uh, perplexing uh, elements, but I think for the large part, difficulties come as we read the passage with a certain presumption. And that is the presumption that the writer is arguing in the way in which we would argue, or most likely would argue. In other words, I'm saying that the problem here um, can be a, a problem, uh, there's, there's a barrier for understanding and interpretation. If we come uh, with a, the presumption that the uh, writer is developing an argument that is largely complete and coherent apart from his use of Scripture. In other words, that the argument has its basic structure, uh, its integrity apart from an appeal to Scripture, so that uh, in the argument, uh, Old Testament appeal to the Old Testament would serve to, to reinforce or to, uh, to undergird um, uh, an, an essentially um, um, tight or, or logically uh, complete pattern of argument. In other words, um, put it, maybe it can just be put this simply if it, I wasn't clear in what I was just uh, saying. Uh, we have to be careful coming to the passage assuming that the writer is using scripture uh, essentially as proof text in the good sense, appealing to scripture as, uh, as providing uh, the texts that prove uh, the uh, terms of his argument. Now the problem with that way of looking at the passage is that the situation is precisely the reverse in this passage. The scriptures cited are the major element in fact. The writer's own remarks are the minor element. Maybe that's another way of of, uh, drawing the contrast to what I was suggesting 
another way of saying what I was, uh, another way of, of stating the, um, the problem that can come up uh, for reading here is to assume that the writer's remarks are the major element and his use of scripture, the Old Testament, is a minor element. And in fact, it's precisely the reverse. Uh, to appreciate that gets us on the right um, track here. Now, further, so far as the composition of the passage is concerned, what we have here, what the writer is doing here, is providing an annotated treatment of certain Old Testament passages. An interpretive handling of Scripture applied to his reader's situation. That's looking at the thing positively now. An annotated handling of Scripture. In other words, it's a passage in which Scripture is the base. Now, there's a certain background, without um, being able to go into it extensively here, there's a, there's a certain background uh, that has come to light, uh, particularly in, in the biblical studies of the last century or so, that enable, have enabled um, us um, to appreciate better what is going on uh, in this passage, not only in this passage, but elsewhere in Hebrews. And I'm, uh, I'm, particularly for those of you who have had Dr. Silva's course um, that's uh, required in the hermeneutics program on, um, forget what you call exactly, where you look at the New Testament uh, use of the old. Um, this, I'm just touching on matters here that you would have gotten into much greater uh, depth there. But the background that helps us here is a contemporary Jewish exegesis in hermeneutics that is contemporary to the time of the writer. That's what has become more and more clear in um, in recent decades. Uh, more particularly here, what we have uh, is, on the part of the writer of Hebrews, is, uh, is a uh, handling of Scripture which is, uh, has a rather close correspondence, I would even say, with so-called Pesher method. Uh, that is, for instance, um, quite uh, evident in the Qumran materials, so-called Midrash Pesher, which are, as you, pro as you probably recall, these are both um, terms for interpretation um, applied then as, as labels to... Um, refer to a particular kind of interpretation. Now, without um, getting into um, uh, just calling attention to certain uh, key considerations, uh, and, uh, and particularly, uh, yeah, not trying to argue just how closely this passage conforms to, say, what the what we see in the Qumran materials, uh, let's just say it's, it's Midrash-like character, it's, it's Pesher-like character seems undeniable. Because it's easy here to identify what are three main characteristics of Pesher method. 
Um, for one thing, we have here, as uh, a Pesher characteristic, a relatively lengthy quotation followed by interpretation. So look, uh, what am I talking about? Look at, at 3.7. You'll see that it opens with a citation of Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. So um, the, the, the unit, the section opens uh, with a quotation, relatively lengthy. You can see a, a, a segment of, of um, textual material. Uh, followed then by an interpretation, uh, beginning in verse 12. It's other, in other words, it's not cited, the Psalm 95 material is not cited to support what precedes, but it stands separate from what precedes. Well, that's maybe too strong a way of putting it, but uh, the, 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 the material quoted the Psalm 95 material marks a shift in the movement of the discussion rather than being uh, um, a, um, cited to, um, to support what has uh, um, just been said. Yes, Bruce? Yeah, well, that's, that's my problem. I, I overstated when I said separate. It, obviously, there's a connection, and I, and I myself have said that, um, that verse 6b triggers what happens in 3, 7 and following. So it, it, it's just that uh, the material is not so much cited, uh, and I think you can only appreciate this as you work through the passage, it's not cited to, to uh, so much to support of the particular statement as it is to provide a base then for uh, what the writer goes on to say beginning at verse 12. But obviously the whole then functions uh, to support what was um, uh, said previously. In other words, it's quoted primarily, maybe that's a more balanced way of, of saying it, it's, the, the Psalm 95 material is quoted for the sake of the exposition and application which follows. Uh, it provides a base or point of departure. So what, what we have then, looking at Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 11, is the um, approximately a half of Psalm 95, Actually, uh, we should notice this uh, here already. Um, basically, what the writer does in his use of the Old Testament is make use of the Septuagint. So what we have here is the Septuagint of Psalm 94. The Septuagint of Psalm 94. And then in verses 312 through 411 particularly, and look at 12 and 13 as kind of a, a postscript. Uh, what we have then is the interpretation of that passage, the in, um, what, what the writer wishes to draw out of the textual base that he finds in Psalm 95. 
So that is a, a first uh, example, structural characteristic of pressure method, which is reflected here. And whether or not we had a pressure method to highlight it, um, it's, it's important to, uh, I think that gets us on the right track in, 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 in working through the passage to see that that's happening. Now, a second characteristic of the pressure method that we can see reflected here is that the material is not simply quoted, but in quoting, in, in it being quoted, um, it's quoted in an interpretive fashion. There's, a, there's an interpretive molding, molding or handling of the quotation. Let me just say here in, in, in passing that uh, here there would also be quite a contrast um, between the, with the extra biblical materials where the, the interpretive molding and handling can often become very, uh, very strained, very, uh, very venturesome. Um, that, uh, comparatively speaking, that, that, that interpretive handling is much more restrained, modest here. But it is here, and we can see it in a... We could... Um, it's worth our time to, to note that. Um, looking, uh, first of all, and you'll need a text in front of you... Um, I think I have an overhead here. Nope. Uh, not, not, of, not of these verses. Um, what, um, what the writer does very clearly is punctuate, looking in, the, in verse 9, he punctuates uh, after ete after the reference to the 40 years. Um, and that can be seen in the fact, uh, in other words, I'm saying the Bible Society's text has, has punctuated correctly there. That can be seen by the fact that the D.O. with which the next line begins is not, is not in the uh, Septuagint text. So that um, there, there's a shift. Um, there is a shift in the these these two modifications. Really, uh, this is really we're really talking about one modification here. There's a shift in the punctuation, and this would certainly be over against the Septuagint text. You could argue about the messianic, uh, the messianic, the Masoretic text, um, but. Uh, uh, the, certainly the text that he quoted, he adopts by inserting that uh, D-O. Let me try to, I try to represent it here a little bit, so this makes, uh, this really needs to be uh, illustrated. See, what you have in the Septuagint, Psalm 95, verses 9 and, 9 and 10, and he saw, and they saw my works. Uh, I was angry with them 40 years. I see you're almost bound in the septu. You're bound to uh, to punctuate after the move, um, because otherwise, then the pros 
Oakthi saw would just be hanging there. So the 40 years becomes an adverbial accusative of, of specification, an adverbial accusative specifying the amount of time that he was angry. And I'm saying that what has happened, you see, in Hebrews 3, 9, and 10 is that the uh, 40 years, by the insertion of the DO, the 40 years has been shifted back um, and, and qualifies... Uh, the time of seeing my works rather than the time that I was angry. But now what's interesting is that when you get to Hebrews 3.17, later on in, in the writer's uh, 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 own um, midrash, if you will, or his own interpretation, now he, in keeping with the Septuagint, brings the 40 years uh, together with the, uh, um, has it qualifying the, uh, the verb expressing God's anger. And the, um, I think uh, that there's that shift then just for the, uh, he's aware of what he's doing and that he has shifted uh, for the interest, in the interest of emphasis. And materially, you, you end up, uh, materially it's not really a changing because uh, the idea of, uh, of seeing God's works um, and God being angry with them is correlative. I mean, it was for it was bound up with that 40-year period because they, uh, uh, because they did not respond to the works of God as they should. So um, there is that uh, little um, uh, phenomenon that we uh, need to be aware of. Then, as a third point, the parallel with, with the, with the pest. Pesher method, and this is a much more. This becomes much more important in, in what our writer does here. A, a third characteristic of Pesher method is the repetition of key words or phrases in uh, the commentary that follows the quoting of the text. And here, uh, the key words, and, and in our own work, we're going to have the occasion to. Uh, to appreciate uh, how they are keywords, the keywords are Samaron, uh, today. Uh, that occurs in verse 13, 15 in chapter 3, and then in 4, 7, it occurs twice. Uh, and then the other, what in effect becomes another key word in the writer's uh, commentary picked up from the passage is the word for rest, katapausis. Uh, in verse 18 and in 4, 3, 5, 10, and 11. And uh, so I've taken the time to, uh, to draw attention, um, at least this far, uh, this much into the, uh, the picture here, because I think uh, we're bringing out a structural point, and an appreciation of that uh, will greatly help 
a proper understanding of this passage as we get into its details. So, um, what we're saying more specifically is that these verses provide an applied exposition of Psalm 95, 7 through 11, and we're going to see along with that Genesis 2, 2. What we have here is applied exposition of Psalm 95, Genesis 2. And what's uh, interesting uh, to note, uh, what should be appreciated anyway, whether you find it interesting, is that this is the only treatment of either of those two passages in the New Testament. The only treatment of Psalm 95, Genesis 2, 2 in the New Testament. By the way, there's a lot of reading you could uh, get into as to the... Um, uh, the background here into uh, Pesher method, and I'm assuming uh, some, some of you are aware of that. Let me just say that uh, as helpful as anything here, uh, still, uh, particularly on this passage, is a work somewhat dated now. It goes back uh, uh, 30 years, but still, um, I think, uh, right on point. Um, and that is the doctoral dissertation of Simon Kistemacher, some of you might know him as a teacher of New Testament at uh, Reform Seminary in Jackson. His dissertation, the Psalm Citations in the Epistle to the Hebrews. Um, what he uh, says there on pages 85 and 86, and then uh, more generally 71 and following, um, provides a helpful handling of this whole Pesher background. Any, uh, any questions or um, whatever? In relation to the pressure method that we have talked, we have uh, somehow confirmed that a long profession is given, then the interpretation is given. Yes. Drifting or uh, shifting the whole emphasis to a new topic. Yes. But if we consider chapter 3, verse 6, the imperative given that if you hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Is it not almost the same emphasis that he is having in verse 14? We have come to share in the best if we hold firm to the end of the confidence we had at the time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I got to think of a better way of saying what I was trying to say here. Uh, I probably have set up too sharp a contrast. Uh, uh, I do, though, want to hang on to this. And not give up, not give up on, on this point. Obviously, there's a connection, but on the other hand, uh, the the Old Testament material is there not primarily to uh, support what he has said in verse six, but introduces a section which will then support what he has said in verse six, and then involves him bringing expressing himself as in in verse 14. There, there is a different accent there, isn't there? And, and just look at it that way. It's not, it, the, 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 the Psalm 95 material is not so much to support, uh, to prove the latter part of verse 6, but the section 3, 7 through 14, which is introduced by um, Psalm 95, that functions altogether to support 
the latter part of verse 6. 